0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
1: His soul looks to Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and earnestly endeavors to trace his example. He has the world to disdain, and constantly tramples on pleasure, but through pain he smiles at persecution.
0: Every episode, we bring you a different voice and a sermon that they delivered. This episode would come to you from recently formed United States of America in the 1700s. You may have noticed this is Troy and not Troy and Joel. That is because Joel is currently not available he is doing some work he actually serves as a missions videographer he goes around the world uh recording and working with missionaries able to film them and talk to them and help bring those videos back so that the people back home can see the work and the cool ministries that these uh that they're you know missionaries that they're sending get to be a part of and Joel is just somebody who's kind of a part of that awesome work he's off doing Uh, some training, I believe, in that area. He's he's working with his group right now, and he would not be able to be on this episode of Revive Thoughts. And I actually really uh, miss him for this episode because it's a very long one. But just as an aside, if you're a new listener, Joel is such a blessing. We uh, met back in Bible College. Joel and I have been friends for a long time, and he's an incredible tech talent this show would not exist without him doing all the technological stuff that is just way outside something i have no skill for and so we're really grateful that he helps us with this and there would never have been a revived thoughts if it weren't for joel and so i hope he's doing great where he is but i do miss him for this episode uh, that we're doing right now now this episode i wanted to make a little addendum before we jumped right in. We've had a lot of really great new listeners. You might be hearing this right now. You might be a new listener. You might be an old listener too. I recently uh, heard from somebody who had been listening for to our show for three and a half years, a real old timer. Um, and that was pretty cool to run into them out there uh, on an internet thread somewhere. But a lot of our listeners are uh, newer. We've had a lot of new ones coming in. We've had just record after record that we've been breaking on our downloads. And it's been a really cool way to break uh, into 2023, just seeing so many people who are, are sending us messages and saying, where has the show been? Or I've never thought of church history and you've taught me so much. And just, just really cool stuff to see. But I did want to make a little uh, kind of just a side note. We've also seen some people kind of confused about how church history works. When we look back at the lives of these people, we look at the good we look at the bad, we try to learn from the mistakes of those who lived in the past, and we celebrate the things God has done for those, who the good things that they did. And there are so many of them, and I won't say it's to the level of the Bible, because of course, Scripture is holy, and it's written, you know, it's by God. Uh, his story throughout the church is people being led by God, it's not the same level at all. But just like in David's life, David did great things, and we learn from those, but we also see the mistakes that he made. And we try to learn from that and not make those same mistakes and, you know, kind of apply that to our life. Church history works a little bit the same way, that we see good, we see bad. We try to learn from it. It's not scripture, so it's it's not the same level. And we would never say that it is, and it would be silly to say that it is. But at the same time, we can try to learn from the past. What that doesn't mean, though, is that we endorse everything that these people have done. We certainly don't endorse everything that these people have done. This episode, we're going to be talking about two very... Famous Methodists. And that doesn't mean we think everything Methodism or the Methodists say is, is accurate and that we are telling you go to a Methodist church. And then also doesn't mean we approve of everything the Methodist Church does today. Just like we've had Presbyterians on, and that doesn't mean we approve everything the PCUSA does today, or we've had uh, you know, Southern Baptists on and we approve of everything the Southern Baptists had to do today, or or in the past, or in that time period. We're not these people who are on our show are not being fully endorsed as you can trust every single one of them or that you will agree with every single thing they've ever done. I don't agree with probably lots of the people we've had on. And there's a very good chance that some of these people, I wouldn't go to their church. Revived Thoughts exists to tell you their stories and to give you history as great as sermons. You will have people that you disagree with and you'll listen to their sermon and go, yeah, that's a pretty good point though. I learned from that. I do it all the time. And I go, I would not have sat in that person's church because they don't agree with me on a lot of things, but I did learn from that one. That was, they had to make some good points. And the other side of it, you're going to go, hey, I really love everything this guy said, and he had a lot of great stuff, but man, I didn't really like when he did these things. Ugh, I wouldn't have done that myself. Oh, I'm growing from that too. We are sharpening ourselves and learning from God's people. Just like when you go to church, you probably don't agree with, and like every single thing everyone around you says, you have people you disagree with, and that's okay. There's nothing bad about that. And you still are friends and brothers and Christ and sisters in Christ. You still have a relationship with them. It's the same way with church history. We're studying them. We're learning from their lives. We're trying to learn how God used them. But that doesn't make it an endorsement of what they did in every single way. In fact, sometimes it's a criticism of, I would not have done that. And on the other side, it doesn't mean we endorse their current manifestations. Just because they did something 300 years ago that was good doesn't mean they're great today. The Rome, Christians in Rome in the second century, a lot of them were really great. But I don't know that I would celebrate the Church of Rome, you know, the the Catholic Vatican Church of Rome today. Things change, and we recognize that those things change. And so we're understanding that that's the point of church history is to see what God did in the past, learn from it, both the good and the bad, but not understanding that things have changed in a lot of these circumstances. I just wanted to make that point because we've received a few messages and thoughts from people who are kind of going wait does that mean because you had this person on you like everything this no no it doesn't mean that at all we're learning from them and it's a blessing to get to be able to do it now in this episode we're going through two two people getting two for one and this really would have been a great episode to have joel on because this is a two for one special here dr thomas cook And Francis Asbury are the two people that we're working through. And you may have noticed the episode Coke is what it looks like his last name is. That's what I thought at first. But no, this is Thomas Cook. And honestly, I'm very excited. I've wanted to do an episode on one of these guys, Francis Asbury, for a really long time. And I'm kind of cheating because I'm using a sermon where he was ordained to kind of cover him. But Francis Asbury is like the guy who would have been known for circuit riding. And When you start a podcast like this, if you like history like I do, there are certain kind of things you just always wanted to do. For example, I always wanted a sermon from every century. I just thought it'd be cool if we could say, man, we've had one sermon from every single century. We're still missing a sermon from the first century, although I might have one. We are missing a sermon from, I think, the eighth and ninth centuries. Uh, But to be honest, we've got pretty much every other century covered. And that's really cool and just fun to be able to say like, wow, we've seen you know sermons from most of the centuries that the church has been around. And we like to have sermons from cool movements and things that have happened. I've always wanted a sermon from like the cowboy days, where what a pastor would have said to cowboys, right? Or maybe a sermon to pirates, which one does, I don't know if a sermon exists, but we do know of a pastor who did reach out to pirates, Uh, Cotton Mather, did that and basically sat some of them down. I was like, you're sinning. Just these cool things that are like, what would that have been like? And we've gotten to see some of them. A sermon at an execution of a man, a wedding sermon that was written from prison, a sermon by David Livingston, the great explorer of Africa from his early days. So we do have some sermons that are just mind-blowing historical examples of a sermon by a man. He only delivered one sermon in Chinese. He was a Chinese missionary, and then he died by pirates. And in the sermon, he starts it with like, who cares so much about pirates? Where are you going to go after you die? And then he died, and that sermon got he shared with everyone, like, look at this guy. He died by pirates, but look what he had to say about eternal life. There's just these cool things. This was a sermon. This wasn't a topic I always wanted to cover, the circuit riders. These guys who rode up and down the coast of America, going from town to town, no road sometimes, just through the forest almost, basically, telling people about Jesus Christ. And Francis Asbury was one of the most famous ones you could ever have. But the problem with looking for sermons by guys like this is that history doesn't really keep them because they were transient and they were moving from place to place. Their sermons got lost to us. And so it was very difficult to find one. But I did find the ordination of one, and that's gonna have to work for us on this episode. Thomas Cook is also an amazing person. I had not really known how amazing he was, but this is basically a two-for-one special because he was incredible. He seemed to be almost a nominal Christian, born as the only child to wealthy parents, and his early life included private tutorings. And both of these men were born around 1744 and 1745. Now he would be just kind of a normal story until he went off to Oxford at 17. There he got swept up, this is Cook, in godless lifestyle and godless thinking from his teachers. They kind of made fun of him for being a simple Christian with his simple beliefs. And he didn't really like that. So he he kind of retreated from it. Soon he'd be able to just agree with and go along with godless philosophies. And he said he came very close to being caught up in scandals. I imagine he means drinking and adultery and those kind of things. But some good books got into his hands, specifically one by Dr. John Witherspoon, where reading the doctrines and reading the theology from that book kind of corrected his thinking. And he broke off his old friendships and said, No, I think I need to go down this path of following God. And he got his thinking right and his heart right there and started to become, got a doctorate in civil law, kind of working his way into being a lawyer. Now this might sound good. And while he's kind of moving his way up that judicial branch because of the Church of England's relationship with the government at the time, he eventually becomes an Anglican kind of bishop and he'll oversee see a town and preach the sermons and help with the law stuff. But the thing is, he wasn't saved yet. He didn't have salvation. God was not in his heart And even though God had spared him from the godless thinking of the philosophers, he was a nominal Christian. He thought he was Christian, but he wasn't. And so as he was preaching and teaching, he was reading them very passionately, but he was just reading other people's sermons. They weren't his because he didn't have anything to share. Now, This is alone amazing. This is actually not the first time we've talked about this. This has actually happened a few different times in church church history where a guy is preaching and ends up preaching himself into the faith, which is just strange to me. But as he's reading these sermons and getting ready to preach them passionately, God is revealing the truths of the sermons to him. And he was like, whoa, this is so cool. Did you guys know this about God? And he's preaching with such passion, partially because they're new truths to him. And he's excited to share them. And the people love it. They've never seen preaching like this. And they're all coming in but they noticed that he never pushes salvation. He never pushes people to get saved. And that's because he didn't feel any assurance in his own salvation. He really didn't think he knew God. One day he got up to preach a sermon and God had just been wrestling and wrestling with his heart and his own lack. And he just became changed. He took the sermon down. He just kind of had a moment. And he just started preaching from the heart and the joy of Christ just overwhelmed him. And he just was different. And he started to preach passionately that day, not the sermon he planned, but just a new one. And his sermons just became famous like that. And that was the moment he was like, I'm in. I don't know if he got saved in that pulpit in that moment or on the way to the pulpit. It was hard to tell. But either way, he was different from that point on. The joy of the Lord was with him. His sermons were powerful because of kind of this way he came to Christ And yet they convicted a little bit too hard and hit some of the members of his congregation with power, kind of threw him out of the congregation, didn't like the way he was doing things. It was a contentious throwout. Some people loved him, some people didn't. Um, But the new guy who came in really wanted to rub it in his face that things were different and that the old strict... Guy that had been passionately preaching Christ and, and and convicting people was gone, and so he called for a big feast. Everyone they got out some old cider, they threw a giant party to celebrate Cook being gone, and they rang a church bell two thousand times to really let him know we don't like you and you're out of here. Was interesting. It's just a little spoiler alert here, going forward in the story. But thirty years later, Cook came back to that town to preach and part of a speaking to her, and he met in that same area. And interestingly. Two thousand people came to hear him speak and hear from the Word of God. So kind of that two thousand number coming back to him, a little bit of a little bit of a twist there for that. Now, as he left this church, he met John Wesley. We've talked about John Wesley, very famous person. You can go check out several episodes. We had a recent one uh, we did where we talked about him and his relationship with Charles Wesley, and actually includes part of this story is in this John Wesley story. Caused a big rift. So go check it out after this episode if you haven't listened to it because they connect very well. Now, the early Methodists uh, were you know, being led by John Wesley, and they were all about these fiery evangelisms, but they were a little bit reluctant, actually, to send missionaries abroad to go out into the world. They were really focused on Britain and a bit on America. But Cook He was all excited to get world missions together and send as many people as he could as early as just a couple years after what he would kind of consider his salvation moment and joining with the Methodists. I mean, just a couple years, he was trying to get Methodists to the Caribbean. He was trying to get them to the Africa. He was trying to get people out there and start doing this stuff. And he kept making attempts, but they wouldn't go right and couldn't quite get the organization to move where they needed to. And they're looking at things and going look we have an, you know this new colonial america to deal with we're in the middle of a war because it's 1778 and we're at war with america right now we don't really have the manpower to spare to be sending these missionaries all over but cook was determined so finally wesley goes you know i got a, i got a good job for you cook and wesley ordained cook to go to america and be its superintendent along with another man and this was all a secret cook got on a boat didn't tell anybody went to America, gathered people together and basically was like, I'm on a mission from John because America and Britain have split and America is no longer a colony. He wants me to be ordained to start making ordained ministers for the Methodist movement of America and kind of make it a different organization than what we had before. And we talked a bunch about this. This led to a big fight between John and Charles Wesley. And you can go check that out on that John Wesley episode, Almost a Christian. So we're not going to cover that as much in this episode. Now, Cook crossed the seas, gets everyone together, and there he goes, ready to ordain, but he wasn't going to do it alone. Wesley wanted him to work with one other person, and that person was Francis Asbury. Now, why is Francis a part of this? Who is this man that was so important? Well, born around the same year that Cook was, he was born in England. His older sister died before he was three, and his mother sank into a heavy, unliftable depression that lasted for years. Eventually, ministers traveling preached a revival that worked a zeal for God into his mom and kind of snapped her out of that depression she'd been in. She began to run meetings and church became the most important thing in her life, having Bible studies at her home and all this exciting stuff that was beginning to occur of a real change in her life. And this actually led to Asbury getting teased at school by his friends for having the the overly religious mom. Now, I always think that's interesting because if you think of England in the mid-1700s, you would think that's a pretty Christian place that your parents wouldn't be made fun of for being zealous for God. And yet, here we have this story where Francis is getting basically bullied at school for this stuff. At seven years old, he said he had what, what quote, stirrings of religion and began to really see it. And his mom encouraged him, hey, go go have a Bible study with some other studious boys. Find some good Christian friends to work around with you. And he did. And over time, this little group would kind of go see all these amazing revivalist sermons that preachers that came into town one after another, and soon he started preaching himself. You know, Francis Asbury started jumping in the circuit and giving his all in all too. And it's interesting to know, he wasn't yet even an adult from what I can tell when he started doing this. It was actually quite common back in the 18th and 19th century to have these pretty young people start preaching at a pretty young age. They were expected to carry that load. I don't know how well they did it, but it was something you were expected to do starting at a young age. Now at 22, Wesley uh, saw the potential that Francis here had, um, Asbury here had, and he sent them to America to start a preaching circuit over there. Um, There wasn't really hardly anybody over there doing it at the time. Within days of getting there, he kind of called some people together. He only had about 10 others with him, uh, 10 other ministers, I think, across north america at the time that were methodists but as soon as he arrived he started getting called over to preach at different places within 17 days of making the voyage to america he'd already preached in three different cities philadelphia new york city and uh and uh, and Staten island so he was just moving quickly asbury was a necessary force but then the revolutionary war broke out and this is a moment that didn't go very well for asbury he was in a part of maryland kind of helping a church there but maryland passed a law oath of loyalty you have to swear loyalty to america but Cook was like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm loyal more to this church movement. Technically, we're being, you know, taken care of by the British. We want to stay neutral. We don't want to take a side with Britain or America. And so he encouraged his followers to remain neutral. But this caused problems as they were kind of getting crowds, and the authorities wanted them to make it, pick a side, take the oath. Eventually, uh, Maryland would kind of go after some of his people for not taking a side and Asbury ended up getting them in trouble. And some of them were charged with treason. And obviously during wartime, that's a big deal. And it became a real problem. And so he ended up leaving them, going to Delaware where there was no oath and working from there. Sometimes he'd go to Maryland to check on his prisoners, and they would get caught because they were with him. It was a whole uh, mess and I, and I don't think that was one of asbury's highlighted moments where he i'm sure you know maybe his story could write and explain how everything he did was actually good but it didn't look like a good moment where his people are getting in trouble working with him through this neutral thing even though they were trying to do the best they could but during this time asbury met a man that this was his nickname henry black harry Hoosier who couldn't read uh, this guy was an african-american man couldn't read and yet he was the driver taking Asbury from town to town as he was traveling and doing things during this time. And so Asbury would read him the Bible, and this guy would just memorize it deep into his soul. And Asbury said, God providentially arranged this meeting between me and this uh, guy. And the two of them became very close. He, they kind of worked together, and eventually uh, Black Harry, as he was called, would be would be the first Uh, black man to preach to white congregations in the United States. And he was an important person that would play, these would play big roles into forming um, what would end up being like the African American Methodist movement throughout this. And Asbury formed a really close relationship with him. In 1784, that same Francis Asbury is now meeting with uh, Cook. And Cook is saying, you're the other guy that John Wesley is ordaining that he wants to make the superintendent over America. And despite having almost no schooling, uh, dropping out at 12, Asbury would end up going on, with it would be extremely successful at this job. It would help fund, fund and found the Sunday school movement. And he would actually start several schools. If you look it up, you can find several schools are attached to his name to this day. It's important to know also that Asbury did all this before there was really a good transportation system. When they're traveling up and down America, it's easy to think of America as connected, but there's no international highway. There's no trains. This is crossing paths, crossing forests, crossing mountains, untrodden trails, going from church to church, staying at taverns and whatever house will keep you to share the good news and oversee a massive amount of area. No telephones, no emails to plan ahead, certainly no trip advisor or place to book a hotel. You just had to hope. And there would be many, many, I mean, uncountable times where he would go town to town and it could be days before a house could be found to lodge as he's going from one town to to another. America at this time was extremely untamed and uncivilized in that way. And you would be all kinds of dangers, bears, wolves, animals, I mean, dehydration, starvation, winter weather, all the things you can imagine that that would go through. And yet he didn't die and he managed to bring Uh, He managed to crisscross the country. And over the course of his lifetime, Asbury would cross 130,000 miles going back and forth, back and forth so many different times. He would cross to the Appalachian Mountains 60 times. And again, this is in the early days when you have, I mean, animals, wolves, bears, all kinds of stuff in there, looking for food, all those things. You can't just go to the grocery store. You had to bring it with you. And not only that, but Asbury was really wild. He really believed in staying poor and staying humble with his money. And he would often start these, journeys and say, I don't have the money to make it to where I'm trying to go. I'm going from New York City to Boston. I have $3 to my name. I don't have the money, but I trust God will get me there. And and God always did. He became known as the most famous face, the most famous man in America, even more famous than George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Everyone knew his face, because everyone could go, oh yeah, that's Francis Asbury. I remember when he stayed in town when he he came to preach at such and such a church and he stayed right over at that tavern. Why we know him, of course. Yeah, he stayed here. They leave little plaques as where Francis Asbury stayed when he was there. What's a little bit ironic is he actually hated it. He didn't. Really, he was very anti vanity. He didn't want anyone to paint his face. In fact, it was twenty years into his job before they were like, "You're the superintendent of the Methodist movement." Can we get you to paint a painting for your mom who hasn't seen you in all this time back in Brittany? All right, I'll let you paint one picture for my mom, paint a couple pictures. We, that's really the only reason to this day that we know what he looks like. But he really didn't want it to be about him. He really wanted it all to be about God. They would offer him raises and say, you're making almost no money. Is there anything we can do to help you make a little bit of extra money? And he says, as long as I have a horse and I can, I have my voice, I can go, I can preach God. I don't need more money. I can continue to live this pioneer lifestyle because I'm going where God has called me to go. His impact was huge. Not perfect, but by the time he died, there were 2,000 preachers preaching across America that had been ordained by him in this movement, and the Methodist church had become completely independent in the American side for for the most part. And as for Cook, back to that guy, he continued in his passion for foreign missions. He, in the late 1700s, kept making calls, kept making appeals, saying, bring missionaries to the world, we need them. He went with a crew to go to Nova Scotia up in Canada and they said we're gonna get a missionary settlement going on we're gonna get some people reaching out but they had a bad storm on the course and they eventually ended up a little off track they ended up in the Caribbean 2,000 miles south of Nova Scotia Canada and Antigua and they were so confused and I think you would be confused too if you you know were going on a trip to visit some family in one part of the world and you ended up on a completely different part of the world. That's just something that could happen. And yet Cook and the missionaries were with said, this is a sign from God. God didn't want us to go to Canada. He must have wanted us in the Caribbean. And so they started a fruitful ministry there and completely abandoned the plans to go to Canada. He helped settle these missionaries in and they just kept working. The labor was fruitful. Huge crowds came to see the people that thought they were going to Canada, but ended up in the Caribbean. By the end of his life, 11,000 members across several circuits running the Caribbean islands would be attached to this. It would be 10% of what the Methodist movement was in England. It was a huge thing. All that started, all of it, because a storm took them the wrong turn, and they decided to just do what God had called them to do where God had brought them to. Still, though, Nova Scotia said, hey, we still want those you know, missionaries cooked. Can you bring them our way? And They begged them. They begged them. They said, we need some pastors. We need some people. Please help us out. And so he kept going back to the mission board, kept going back and saying, give me more people, give me more people. And John Wesley and some of the other leaders said, you're taking all of our best ministers and you're sending them abroad. We need some of them at home but Cook was so desperate to get people and get money that he would beg them. He would go to the conferences and just beg, 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 get on his hands and knees. Please help me send missionaries to Nova Scotia. Please help me send missionaries to Africa. We've got to do more. In fact, at one point, he just started begging door to door for funds to send missionaries. And can you imagine, he's at this point, the assistant, one of the most important people in the Methodist movement. You open your door one day and he's just sitting there begging. He's saying, please, Can you spare a few dollars? We're trying to send these people to Nova Scotia so they can have some missionaries. I mean, can you imagine if your pastor did that? Your church's pastor came over not for funds for the church, but just to send a missionary somewhere said, hey, we need money. We don't have enough Could you help us. We're going door to door. Anything you give can can really help us get a missionary out. That's just what humility, right? What just a powerful, I, I was really, really moved by that. Just this door to door, whatever it'll take to get the funds, I'm willing to do it. Now, it's even more, he would end up sending missionaries to Wales and there would be a big movement there. He ended up sending missionaries to France during the French Revolution. And this was only like a footnote in some of the research I was doing, but he helped organize work for 70,000 French prisoners to get work in England during the French Revolution. And from what I can tell, because he did that, he basically helped save 70,000 refugees who were gonna probably get killed or have a really hard life and got them to England and got them safe. It was just a footnote. Doesn't really, didn't really see the research on, I didn't have time maybe, but to to see how he did it. But that alone is a pretty powerful of 70,000 people can help trace their survival and getting out of the French Revolution, the cook, that's a big deal. And he helped get an African missionaries to Sierra Leone. He spent his whole life dreaming this dream. And finally, he decided in the late, in the late age of 66, I'm gonna be do it. I'm gonna be a missionary. I've always had a heart for missions. I've gone to all these different places. I've preached all these different places. I've worked with America for a while. And he did. He helped oversee things in America. And finally he's like, I'm going myself. And so he gets on a boat with nine other missionaries, heading to India, and they're all excited. Um, but as they're kind of pulling into the Indian Ocean, a terrible storm rocks the boat. It's terrible. He's a frail old man, and he gets sick from it. And as they're kind of pulling into the area they need to arrive, I don't know it was the day that he was pulling in. But as they're kind of getting close to the place, he passed away in his sleep before they ever reached their destination. Now, this was a longer background episode covering two different amazing people of history. And I again, I wish Joel could have been here. But I'd found this quote about the zeal of Thomas Cook. And I wanted to share this with you. And this it's just a little statement about it. As evidence of, a st- of his zeal, one must his endless travels, which exceeded both Whitfield and Wesley, including crossing the Atlantic an astounding 18 times, you know, before airplanes, on an old rickety sailor ship. Further, he is to be noted for his sacrificial giving, which was more than any other Methodist and probably any Protestant of his day. He gave up his own inherited fortune. He married two different times, and each time his his wife would give up their fortune for the cause of missions. By the way, he didn't have two different wives. One died, he married another one. Uh, he often personally covered the deficit needed to finance Methodist mission efforts, his, his own money. He was not an armchair philosopher, but he served shoulder to shoulder with these men that he was recruiting one of the biggest criticisms Cook would end up getting was you're too graceful to the people we send to the missionary field. We need them to do more. And he said, you just don't know what it's like, pretty much. he It's such a difficult thing. I have so much respect for those who would do it. Two amazing men who absolutely changed the world. One did amazing things in America, riding horses up and down a dangerous coast and a dangerous time. And the other, just sending people and organizing things and seeing things change around the world. And they had this moment where they met together. They met together other times, but they had this moment where they met together where they were changing history and they kind of knew it. They knew, Cook knew when he was ordaining Francis Asbury that this was changing the movement forever. These two people would affect continents and all of world history. And while this is happening, Cook is ordaining Francis Asbury. gives this sermon that you're going to listen to. He says, this is what I think a minister of God is supposed to look like when he honors God with everything that he is and people can see Christ reflected in this and you're going to listen to this sermon and I think you're going to see that Cook and Asbury took this definition of what a man of God is supposed to look like and they really went to live it out.
1: This is the preserving power and guard of every other grace. As once was said, other graces without humility are like a fine powder in the wind without anything covering them. We can be so zealous and work so hard, yet if we lack humility, we will be like the child who tries to fill his bucket with water but doesn't see the hole at the bottom. There is something interwoven with human nature which immediately recoils at the very appearance of pride. But this man, Francis Asbury, is clothed with humility. When no other grace shines any longer, we can see this beautiful veil of humility on him. He is a vessel fit for his master's use. His eyes focused, he moves directly on his only desire to glorify God and benefit humanity. Yes, he lives for no other end. He is torn between two desires, and at the same time a fervent desire to be a blessing to his fellow creatures. He is crucified to the world and the world to him. And his soul, disentangled from every selfish view and emptied of every selfish desire, is a fit receptacle of all the divine gifts which God is willing to bestow. He continually lies at the feet of his Lord. And the language of his heart is not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory. There is no impediment in his soul to the divine operations. He is as the clay in the hand of a potter, as the pen in the hand of the ready-writer. His humble spirit simply inquires into the will of its God, and when that is discovered, it looks no longer with flesh and blood, but fulfills it with the most complete resignation and great delight. Meekness. This is a passive grace. It is the sacred sail of the soul providing a holy balance and support on rough waters. It is an evenness, a divine serenity of spirit, which is not provoked, which nothing can move to wrath. It is that moderation spoken of by St. Paul which harmonizes all the passions and holds every power of the heart in sweet subjection. It ties them all to the horns of the altar. In this, the Christian bishop eminently shines. Through all the attacks of sinners and the shouting of words, he still retains his gracious state of mind. The Christian bishop discovers no emotion but that of pity and compassion, gentleness of heart, and above all, love. This is the quiet spirit whose price is great in the sight of God. It is the spirit of the lamb whose voice was not heard in the streets. It is the voice of the lamb who was oppressed and afflicted, even so much as to be brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. Oh, how contrary to the spirit of the meek and lowly, Jesus is the turbulence and violence of many who call themselves the ministers of Christ, But the sheep will flee from such for they know not their voice gentleness this is an active grace gentleness is a grace which flows out in the conversation and the way one carries oneself in public and in private it is christian courtesy this grace the christian bishop possesses in a high degree grace is poured into his lips from the fullness of jesus we have all received grace upon grace nothing that is grating drops from his mouth His very rebukes are dipped in oil. How invitational in all his language, while the hearer hangs upon his words! His words drop like the gentle dew from heaven upon the place beneath. His face, and every gesture, and every feature, beams love. This is a key to opening hearts. Such an amazing harvest will this attitude, accompanied by the blessing of God, gradually open to his zealous soul. He makes Christianity appear pleasant even in the judgment of the world itself and except when employed in the severe duties of his work, he knows nothing of paining others. Patience This is the grace that endures all things. This grace flows out in sufferings and trials and bears up the soul under every difficulty. Virtue grows under oppression. The more this virtue is exercised, the stronger it grows. Let us view the Christian bishop in this respect. Behold, with what a steady pace he moves, equally unshaken by the smiles or frowns of others, He gently moves along like a mighty river that washes out all before it, and yet waters every fertile meadow on its sides. His great Zerubbabel proceeds before him, and every mountain collapses into a plain. His soul looks to Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and earnestly endeavors to trace his example. He has the world to disdain, and constantly tramples on pleasure, but through pain he smiles at persecution." and thanks his God for the opportunity of displaying an example to the world of faith he proclaims. So he goes, Till he has finished the work which God has given him to do, and when the organs of his body have been weakened and failing by the diseases which sooner or later assault the human frame, he still puts out his little strength for the glorious cause in which he has been so long engaged. All until having fought the good fight and finished his course, he drops asleep in the arms of his God. Courage. His soul is far above the fear of physical dangers. He possesses this cardinal virtue in all its strength and vigor. He adds to his faith courage. And though it is so divinely tempered by all the softer passions as to be hidden to all but the discerning eye when he is not engaged in confrontations, yet it is always there in his inmost soul like an iron pillar holding him up. But when the church is in danger, he always steps to the front. He stands in the front of the battle, and will try to receive all the fire of the enemy. Like a faithful shepherd, he steps between the wolf and the sheep, and is perfectly willing to lay down his life for their sake. If you touch the church of God, you touch the apple of his eye. And though he is not entirely ignorant of the value of his life and labors, yet when the cause of Zion calls him, he laughs at fear, and is unafraid and does not run from the sword. He beholds his once-suffering but now-exalted Saviour. He looks up to the noble army of martyrs, the cloud of witnesses, and follows their glorious track. Lack, pain, hate. He will enjoy disgrace and glory in a death well finished. Impartiality. This is the rarest of all virtues, and yet one of the most important for a leader of the church. There is nothing more intolerable to each of us than partiality in those that govern, and it always springs in part from a smallness and sinful state of mind. When it is present, the vineyard of the Lord is thrown open to every beast of prey. But a Christian bishop is without partiality and without hypocrisy. He moves by equal rules. He seeks not the praise of others, but serves the Lord Christ. He meets with the constant and effectual support of those whom only he esteems, the upright and the good. And when the welfare of the church demands the separation of a rotten member, however rich, however honorable, however powerful, he clothes himself with the dignity of his office, and executes the will of God. Zeal. In this he is eminent, for though it is softened and corrected by the other graces, yet it wraps up his heart in the interests of Zion, and the zeal of the Lord's house eats him up. He sighs for the conversion of the whole world, and cries out with the souls under the altar, How long, O Lord? Oh, how his zealous spirit rises above the honors, the riches, and the pleasures of the world! He leaves them at a distance behind his whole attention is swallowed up by the greater things than these while people of the world are busy in the pursuit of earthly objects he attempts in the spirit of his lord to extract honey out of every flower good out of every evil he watches for the opportunity runs through every open door and is spent for the good of all wisdom this reigns over all his soul he is endued with it by the god of grace He is as wise as a serpent. His eye continually checks the whole circle of his work, and yet who so blind is he? He is all ears, and yet none is so deaf. He sets his feet in the center of his sphere, and feels the smallest motion at any angle. He knows with clear precision when to speak and when to be silent, when to move and when to be still, when to parry and when to stab. He has a quick discernment of people and how people behave and act, but he is never in a hurry about appointing a church leader. His choice of laborers proceeds from the ripest judgment and from the clearest evidence that can be produced. He feels all the strength of his resources as if they were wholly centered in himself and knows how and when to use them. He is acquainted with the various views, the knowledge, the situation, the circumstances, and the wishes of the people. He knows the various gifts, graces, and abilities of the pastor's, He makes them all come together into something greater than their individual parts he brings out all his force against the common enemy he spreads his sails to every favorable wind he keeps in motion every wheel of the machine and uses to the utmost every person and everything within his power for the glory of god and the health of his church communion with god and confidence in god these are his supports through all his trials he lives within the veil This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. His soul cleaves to God, and he waters all his work with fervent prayers. He places upon the altar of his heart the interests of the Church of Christ and sends them up to the throne of grace with all the sacred fervor of devotion. He spreads out all his hopes and fears. He spreads out all his hopes and all his fears before his God and makes all requests known to God. After prayer, he then returns to his labors with cheerfulness and vigor. He walks with God and moves with a full confidence and divine assurance of success, so far as the means he uses can answer the great end of everything he does leading to the glory of God and to the good of all humanity. Seriousness Though he lies at the feet of all the lovers of Jesus, yet he never debases himself. He knows his station and builds up the ministry. The enemies of God may fear and hate him, but they cannot despise him. No casual approach to ministry is present in him. All is dignity as well as love. If he were in the presence of the most powerful men on earth, it wouldn't affect him. He lives in the presence of his master and says nothing but what is appropriate in the audience chamber of the King of Kings. Oh, what a blessing to the world are the ones who answer this description. A shining arrow in the quiver of God and a burning and shining light. His spices are continually perfuming the place where he is, and out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water for the benefit of all among whom he travels. When he visits a people, he comes in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel, and his master's feet are heard behind him. He conserves every golden moment, picks up every fragment of time, and devotes his time and efforts to the service of his Lord. He looks with the deepest contempt on dishonest money, and is perfectly satisfied with the riches of Christ. A Prayer for Leaders O you lovers of souls, who do not desire the death of a sinner, have pity on this world. Remember Calvary, hear the pleading intercessor, and lift up leaders after your own heart, full of the Holy Spirit, full of love, and full of zeal. Guide them by your Spirit, accompany them with your omnipotence, so that they may tread down the kingdom of Satan under their feet. And on its ruins build up your glorious church some advice to the church upon choosing leaders you may now easily perceive the dreadful effects of raising immoral or unconverted leaders to the government of the church the destructive influence of their example is so extensive that all the skill and cruelty of devils can hardly fabricate a greater curse than an irreligious bishop but people of god look for righteousness godliness faith love Patience and Meekness. Advice to the new bishops. Be an example to the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Keep that which is committed to your trust. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure suffering Do the work of a preacher of the good news, and carry out your service fully. And God will open a wide door, indeed, which all your enemies will not be able to shut. God will carry the gospel under your direction from sea to sea, perhaps from one end of the continent to the other. Only feel the importance, and feel the danger of this work, and let not the foot of pride come against you. Preserve yourself in all humility, and chastity, and holy love and you will be a vessel of gold in the sanctuary of God. You will bring millions to righteousness directly or remotely, and will shine in glory as a star of the first magnitude forever and ever.
0: I really enjoyed this sermon. It's a little bit different, and it's certainly of a different style. Going through the characteristics, we've done other ordination sermons before, and for an ordination sermon, it's about that kind of style. Yet, he describes what the man of God is supposed to be in such amazing terms. What one person could do all those things? And yet, we know that we can't do these things, even if we're called to do these things, but through Christ, we can. And if you're saying, I'm not a minister, you are still called to live in many of the same ways that these people are. You are called to go and do these things, and only through Christ will you be able to succeed in it. Cook and Asbury are not perfect, and we weren't able to get into all their flaws in this episode as much as I would have liked and would have liked to really flesh out their full story. And yet, we have to say that they may not have lived up to the very high and lofty definition of what a minister of God can be, according to Cook. And yet, it's certainly no doubt that that drive to be a true minister of God, they lived for that. This sermon was narrated by Avery Harrington. Thank you, Avery Harrington, for helping us create this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we ask that you share it and tell other people about what we are doing here with Revive Thoughts. We are very excited about this episode. I'm obviously very passionate about these circuit riders and these amazing people and the things that they did. We hope that you enjoyed listening and learning from them and, Check out some of our other episodes, too. We have so many amazing episodes that have come out over the past three years. We are moving into, uh, I mean, it is a few months away. We'll be able to say four years of sermons, episodes, and conversations, and stories of church history. There is so much here to learn from. It's been such a pleasure to bring all these wonderful episodes to you. So go check them out and go share them with others and continue letting other people know it is edifying and reaching many people. And we are pretty grateful to be a part of it. This is Troy, and this is Revive Thoughts.